Hey, Cracked fans. With the summer months just around the corner, we know all of you are beginning to think about how you can best maximize your chances to improve your game with the warm weather. Well, thankfully, we here at Cracked Rackets are so excited to tell all of you about the 254 Tennis Camp happening this summer at Baylor University. Now, over the course of three weeks in June, starting June 12th through the 16th and ending June 26th through the 30th, you'll have the opportunity to learn from from some of the best coaches in the business in an all-encompassing tennis experience. You'll have the opportunity to improve each and every part of your game, whether that be on the singles court, whether that be on the doubles court, through drilling, through point play, match play as well. You'll also, of course, receive a free t-shirt for participating in the camp, but also have the chance to see yourself broadcasted as our Crack Rackets team will be providing coverage of the final day each week at this 254 tennis camp. Again, you'll have the opportunity to learn from some of the best coaches in the business. I promise Coach Michael Woodson and the Baylor team going to make it an extraordinarily enjoyable time. How can you get signed up today? Well, you can learn more information by visiting the Baylor website by going to baylor.edu slash athletics slash tennis camp. Again, that's baylor.edu slash athletics slash tennis camp to sign up today. Now, this camp open to any and all entrants, but limited only by age, number, grade level, and or gender. Again, you can learn more about this camp by going to baylor.edu slash athletics slash tennis camp today. Don't miss out, folks. Going to be three very exciting, fun weeks of tennis down at Baylor University. Be sure to sign up for the 254 Tennis Camp happening at Baylor today. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, May 12th. Once again, I find myself in a position where I need to apologize to all of you listeners. Now, longtime listeners and Crack Rackets fans will know it's been busy times for us here at Crack Rackets. It's not as though I'm slacking off, going off on vacation in one of the busiest times on the tennis calendar. No, as you all know, we are locked in here at Crack Rackets on this weekend's NCAA Sweet 16 and more broadly, the home stretch of the 2022 college tennis postseason. I am attempting to interview each and every of the 32 head coaches still alive in the Division One NCAA tournament. I believe we've released 24 of those 32 conversations, still eight to go. I only had one formal rejection from any of the coaches we reached out to. I won't name drop who that person is. Eventually, you'll be able to find out as you look at the podcast feed, but of course, while we are talking about college tennis over on our Cracked Interviews podcast. This feed has suffered, and unfortunately, it you know it sucks that all these events have overlapped because obviously last week we had a fascinating week of action unfold in Madrid. This week, the action continues over in Rome. Plenty of ATP and WTA action for us to break down and us to analyze this. Folks, we're 10 days away. 10 days away from the start of the 2022 French Open. I am not nearly prepared for the year's second Grand Slam to begin. So, in order to help me prepare 
and help us catch up on all of the action that's happened on both the ATP Tour and the WTA over the past few weeks. We brought in the big gun, folks. As you listeners know, whenever I've got multiple matches to recap here on our mini break podcast feed, there's one guest I like to turn to above all else. He's a guest you know best as a returning champion here on our Crack Racket Show's editorial producer for Tennis.com Tennis Channel. It is our friend, the man who's likely listened to all of those college coaching interviews, David Kane. David, welcome back to the Mini Break Podcast. How are you doing today? Alex, I'm doing great. It's not the first time a man's apologized to me, and it's not the first man to call me a big gun, but I feel I'm really happy to be here and happy to discuss all things tennis, college, or otherwise. As long as it wasn't Phil, because if <laughs> Phil called you a big gun before I did, that's going to hurt my feelings. But no, I, uh, yeah, look, you are the big gun, David. They're, they're, we bring in the heavy honchos. We bring in, you know, again, all the people who can help us break everything down because certainly fascinating times right now across both the ATP and WTA tours. And before we get into all of our action, just a quick reminder, the reason we're able to do these podcasts day in, day out is because of the support we get from all of you, the support we get from our Crack Rackets Patreon family, and of course, because of the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point, you all know the deal. Maybe you're 10 days away as a listener of this podcast from the start of your personal 2022 French Open. Maybe it's your summer league that's going to get started in a couple of months. Maybe you're just finally ready uh, in a couple of days, not months. Maybe you're just finally ready, though to make that transition, start playing outdoor tennis. Maybe you want to update the shoes, the strings, the rackets, the gear accordingly. You can find everything you're looking for at the best prices with our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. You use that promo code CR15, 50% off your order. Free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. You'll also let everyone know, uh, or let everyone know, excuse me, you'll also let our friends at Tennis Point know uh, that we sent you here at Crack Racket. So again, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. Tennis-point.com. Promo code is CR15. One other disclaimer. When I inevitably stumble over my words today, and I promise you it's going to happen with some frequency, just know this is podcast number 10 for me on the day. Still have one more to go here at Crack Rackets. But again, I do apologize for the lack of mini break podcasts over the past few days. I do promise all of you, yes, I will be in Champaign next week and busy calling some of the matches at the 2022 NCAA tournament. We will have a full 2022 French Open preview guide. David doesn't know it. He's already committed to do a pod next week. Uh, and as have plenty of other guests I have yet to reach out to. But with all of that in mind, David, the place we, and none of the other guests, by the way, matters. All that matters is that you have agreed uh, to come on the show next week as well. But with all of that said, a lot has happened over the course of the past week. There are plenty of places we could start today's podcast. I think the place we have to start, Denis Shapovalov knocks off Rafael Nadal in three sets. And certainly Rafa, you know, the fact that he'd only lost, what, one match this season coming into everything. And that one match happened, or two matches, excuse me. But the big one match that he ended up dropping, of course, that match that happened uh, back in Indian Wells, where he initially cracked his rib or fractured his rib, whatever that rib injury was, uh, certainly for Rafa, uh, that fat, you know, that the fact that he had only lost once heading into this clay court season, we all felt if he was healthy, he would certainly be the front runner, even with the surging Alcaraz, the serving surging Novak Djokovic. And then today, you have for Rafa following that loss to Alcaraz last week. I would say this is the by far more concerning of the two. He takes the first set against Denis Shapovalov, looks to be in a comfortable position in that second set. Certainly, Shapovalov raises his level before ultimately earning a three-set victory. 
victory over Rafael Nadal. But the most concerning part of today's victory, if you are a uh, today's loss, I should say, if you are a Rafa fan, is that he was noticeably limping at the end of his match and in his post-match press conference. The quote that's already going around tennis Twitter, I'm not injured, I'm consistently playing with an injury or whatever it may be. He really should have said, I'm not hurt, I'm playing with an injury or, you know, delineated between the two terms, but it's his second language. We're going to give him a pass there. The point being, let's just go right to the panic meter. Where are you with Rafael Nadal following his first two weeks on clay? I certainly didn't expect him to lose this match today. I covered the Casper Ruud Jensen Brooksby match and was sort of lightly to heavily forecasting that he would play Rafael Nadal in the quarterfinals. It was the only quarter uh, the only quarterfinalist yet to be determined and so I was feeling fairly confident that we would see a match between uh, the Rafa Nadal Academy alum and Rafael Nadal himself. And so it was, it was looking to be sort of an interesting matchup. And instead we get a rematch of the Geneva Open final, which mm-hmm. uh, occurred between Kasper Ruud and Denis Shapovalov last year, which led to then Denis not playing the French Open. and hasn't played in France, I think, for quite a while, which will be interesting to see if he plays it this year. It'll be his first time playing in the country in quite a while. But um, I'm a little panicked. I mean, I still feel like a slam is different. I mean, I feel like he came into Australia under an injury cloud and and obviously proved everybody wrong in that respect. I mean, you know, to, to borrow a line from, from Nadal that is often cited and cited by our own Steve Tigner at tennis.com, you know, what happened in Barcelona happened, what happened in Madrid happened, when now what happened in Rome happened, and then we're about to head into Roland Garros. So it still feels like sacrilege to say that uh, Nadal will be anything less than 100% when he needs to be, which is during Roland Garros, but all in all to be this encumbered by an injury at this stage of the game, you would have expected or hoped him to be to be as fresh as possible in Madrid and Rome after the start that he had to the season. So I would say out of 10, I'm about probably a five to a six on the panic meter, but it still feels like just on the strength of how he started the season, even if he doesn't really feel like that counts anymore, I still feel like that there's something of that magic still in that snowman of ours. So uh, yeah. just, just got the right hat on. I like, do you do a Rafa impression? I don't. I've never attempted one. That was actually Ooh. the closest I've ever gotten. So. I like it. No, I feel like everyone, I well, everyone but DK, the big gun, has themselves some sort of Rafa. You know, 2012 didn't lose. 2013 didn't lose. Played really well. Uh, you know, fight hard. Back. I don't quite have the control over my eyebrows that I feel like yeah, is necessary. The, but uh, but again, I'm dealing with the big guns. Yeah, literally. I don't know if you have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you're right. You don't have that mobility yet in the brows. I'll teach yeah. you. You know, that that's a skill we can get you over time. But. I think five's a little low, six is a little low because you look for Rafael Nadal and the mat, you know, the stat that was going around everywhere. He was ten and zero in his career, coming off of six week layoffs and had dropped just two sets in those ten matches heading into Madrid. When you look at Madrid in a vacuum, the first round victory over Kasmanovic, I actually think might be his most impressive victory to date. And I know Gofen pushed him in that second round. Rafa ultimately a seven six victory in the third. You know, Rafa played great in that second set against Alcaraz. Of course, Alcaraz rolls his ankle ultimately, and you could tell he was dealing with the aftermath of that injury in the midst of their second set. But, I mean, I would say Rafa got outplayed in two of the three matches he played in Madrid. Carlos was better than him, clearly, in that quarterfinal. I actually thought Gofen was better than him in the semifinal as well. I know Rafa went up a first set 6-3, and quick starts are going to be critical for Rafa come Paris, but 
you know, with all due respect to his 3-1 and victory over John Isner, Rafa is a man who has predicated himself on his physicality throughout the course of his career. And I know this injury is not new, but this is the first time he's been this injured at age freaking 35. Like, let's just be clear. When you are 18 to 26 years old, and that's a window I'm going to speak about because that's where I'm at right now, injuries really don't last as long. Like, I can tell you, sure, you're going to get sore, you're going to be fine in a day. Like, there's no doubt about that. And if you are a prime athlete who can spend hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars on your body year in, year out, day in, day out, that recovery process becomes that much more efficient. 35 is not 25. It's just not. And between the injury concerns, and he already had an injury not related to the foot that, you know, halted his rhythm earlier this season, between that, between the fact that respectfully— I don't think he played particularly well in his first five matches. And then the fact that, look at the rest of the field. Carlos already proved he can beat him. Now, that's two out of three, not three out of five. But Alcaraz has done it. We'll get to him in a second. Djokovic does look better and better with every match that he plays. And I almost think last week's loss to Carlos Alcaraz is the equivalent of the Karatsev loss Djokovic suffered last season. And it just, like, again... Who smells blood in the water more pungently than Novak Djokovic? If he thinks there's an opportunity, I think he is going to be prepared to seize on it. The last point I would throw at you, and again, it's been a while since I've had a podcast, so I apologize for the monologue. That's not true. It's been a while since I've had a mini-break podcast episode go public, so I have a plethora of thoughts to throw at you, big gun. Um, That's right. Yeah, thank you. You like that? Um, with that, in, I, I said plethora on one of our coaching interviews, and I think – you know, I say I have the voice of a short person. I also like to goof around. One of the coaches was like, you know plethora? And I was like, oh, please. I was like, that's a fourth grade word. Um, anyways, I think a lot of players, there are a plethora of players who are just playing better. Like, look at the overlap between the Madrid quarterfinals and the Rome quarterfinals. You have two loaded events on the men's side. And obviously in Madrid, uh, you had, you know, Zverev ultimately make the finals. He's still alive in the quarterfinals here. Tsitsipas makes the semifinals of last week's event. He's still alive in the quarterfinals here. You have guys like Rude, like, you know, Green and... Sinner, who all should be better on clay. Oh, I'll throw, Sha- uh, you know, well, not Chapo in that conversation, but Rude, Garin, and Sinner, I think, would be three players we all thought could make those sort of quarterfinal type pushes at the French Open at the start of the year. Now, you may laugh at me for the Garin thing, but I'm talking start of the year. I think we might have had him, se- I mean, he made the second week last year. Why not this year as well? The broader point being, the field is catching up. Everyone's starting to play better. And we have not seen Rafa at 100%. Now, I know, again, did that matter at the start of the season? Absolutely not. Are we in Paris where, quite frankly, Rafa doesn't lose? I get that line of argumentation as well. All of that was a six-minute monologue to say five is too low on the panic scale. Like, I'm at six and a half. I'd say 7.2 at this point because I just think there are a lot of compounding factors going against Rafa right now. I mean, I think if you – it's, it's sort of – I think it's sort of a whole versus some of its parts sort of issue. I mean, there's a combination of rust. There's a combination of him having a bad foot day. There's a combination of him playing some really informed players, be it Ketsmanovic, be it, you know, a a resurgent Goffin, an informed Alcaraz, who, yes, by all metrics, outplayed Nadal and then outplayed Djokovic in the next round and then outplayed uh, Zverev in the finals. So, I mean, if we're talking about, you know, um, 
who I think is more likely to win Roland Garros between Alcaraz and Nadal. I think I would probably tip towards Alcaraz just maybe by a hair, just because of how today uh, wound up. But at the same time, again, the expectations for Nadal were on the floor coming into Australia. And that was what he was able to do on hard courts. I just think that Paris is a different animal. And of those plethora of players that you listed, very few of them have gotten the job done at a grand slam. And that's sort of the talking about Casper Ruud coming up. I mean, that's sort of the final frontier for him. Can he do what he's been able to do so successfully on the tour level at a slam? And so I think that extra edge provided it that Nadal doesn't wake up with a sore foot. You know, I think it might just come down to that. He may play five really good matches and not be feeling it in the foot that day. And then he's out of the tournament or it doesn't bother him at all or it bothers him on the first day. I mean, I think it's really that kind of rolling of the dice, but because there is that sort of left to chanceness of it, I'm still not willing to say that it's a done deal because at least the good news is it doesn't appear to be any more talk about the ribs. It's just, yeah. you know, this is a foot issue that he's been dealing with. And the question is, is, is it just sort of the getting back into the rhythm that caused it to flare up again, you know, just sort of the re-increased of the load and what, how does he manage that over the next week and a half leading up to Paris? Hopefully he knows how to handle it by now, but you know, the fact that it, it kind of crept up here is, is all, it is concerning, but at the yeah. same time, again, he's won how many French Opens? 20, 18, <laughs> 34, I don't remember, but like they he's won a lot. counting so. after the 60th. Yeah. I mean, I know Alcaraz has won like 42 of the French Opens, but like, <laughs> Let's let's all put this in perspective. Here. Yeah. By the way, uh, you know, we have a hard out at 90 minutes, so we got to get. No, I'm just kidding here. But, um, you know, plethora of players, true or false. That's a nightclub on Long Island. It's certainly how you would describe the field. Yeah. <laughs> in one of those clubs. <laughs> you would describe, there's a plethora of players. I mean, a, a player, someone who did na- drop plethora in an interview with me that I still am like quivering about to this day is J.J. Wolf when I asked him about his music tastes and he just let the word hang there. He's like, there was a plethora of musicians on my playlist. And I was that's, like, oh, like uh, that's amazing. Like, Tell me more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that. The second one at this stage of life, and we're not professional athletes. Would you rather have a bad foot day or a bad hair day? As someone who, I mean, I, as someone who's been dealing with both actually recently, <laughs> I think, I think I'd rather have a bad hair day because I am on the, ver- I am on the precipice of a haircut on Saturday, fingers crossed that it happens. But yeah, I think it's rough when you're feeling it in the feet as someone who walks and cycles, you know, if you're having, you're feeling it in the big toe or feeling it in, in the toes, it's, it's a rough one. So I, I certainly don't envy what Nadal's going through, especially to your point that his, the cornerstone of his game is physicality, tenaciousness, stamina. If he's feeling it in, in his wheels, I mean, that's 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 a rough one. Here's what I ask to listeners who listen to this podcast and are on Twitter and active and engaging with myself and David. I want, David, when this episode comes out, for you to retweet in the quote tweet and say, as someone who walks, because that's just an exceptional, like, qualifier. And I just want everyone, and, like, I feel, as someone who also walks, I feel qualified to talk about Rafa's foot. Like, and I want all of our listeners to go like that message and laugh at it as well, because that's just, I mean, that's, a, I mean, I know that's not what you were saying, but, like, how great of a qualifier is that as someone who also walks? I should I should have clarified that when I walk, I do mean walk. Like I do live right around the corner from Central Park. I do the whole yeah. loop, yeah, that five miles loop around the park. Exactly. Yeah, as someone yeah. who walks with a yeah. walk. <laughs> I like that. No, but so let's look beyond that because last week, and this is how we can have the combination of things. And you sent me, I mean, it wasn't a mean WhatsApp uh, for retweeting 
about a certain player into your timeline early in the morning that you were not prepared for. I think I get accused of being a zero of apologist by the looks in your eyes every time I bring him up. But you know, Jack Hughes. Talking. Yeah. <laughs> Shakus. <laughs> is that because the French is coming up? You're going to throw Joe Carley on put. Oh, we. Yeah, exactly. But with that in mind, you look at the rest of the field. And Mike Haston, producer at Tennis Channel, who produces Hitting Winners, which I was fortunate to be on about 48 minutes ago, he made the point that I think that he says, I bet by Monday, and Hitting Winners, a gambling centric show, so good use of the phrase bet by him. I bet by Monday. Carlos Alcaraz will be the favorite, according to odds makers, um. to win the 2022 French Open. Now, you saw, and you mentioned it, he's already won 35 French Opens, but you saw it, you know, that title run he went on in Madrid to beat Djokovic, to beat Nadal. I don't care if Zverev wasn't at his best. To beat him down the way he did in the final, that's what a front runner looks like. And obviously, check, he's checked every box. Masters on clay. Masters on hard court. Doesn't lose in finals anymore proven he can beat both Rafa and uh, Novak with some pressure on his shoulders. I view it as, well, I'll just ask you the question first. Should he be the favorite, according to odds make, or not even odds makers, anecdotally, should he be the favorite at this point? I mean, it's interesting that he isn't yet. I guess we're waiting to see if Djokovic were to win Rome, that perhaps sure. that would change uh, the, the course of things. But certainly the fact that Nadal has gone out the way he did, certainly clears the way for Alcaraz to move ahead of Nadal if he isn't already. You know, I talked to a buddy of mine who, with whom we, I talk about tennis. I talk about Real Housewives. So really, we should just get married. It's like my two favorite <laughs> things. But anyway, he, he, his bump and his gripe against Alcaraz was he felt that the hype was really too big. And I have to admit, coming into Madrid, I was feeling quite similarly. You know, he's great. He's gotten a lot stronger. But watching him play Nadal and Djokovic back to back, I mean, this guy is like yeah. beyond the real thing. And it's beyond it's the hype. Game it's stuff. really... It's not doing him justice, the hype. I don't think we've been hyping him enough, quite frankly, Wait. in specific enough ways. Hold on. We on this podcast, and you are privy of this conversation, so I include you, we have him not eliminated from the GOAT conversation. We're know, doing we, our job here at the mini break. We've done our best, but I feel like we could really be elucidating exactly what makes him so great. The fact that he could hit every shot in the book, the fact that he could go out with a busted ankle and survive Djokovic in three and a half hours. I mean, the fact that he can, you know, he's got the strength, he's got the power, he's got multiple game plans. He was able to be two very different experienced opponents in two days and then was able to crush what's his name in the final. I mean, I just feel like it was, it was a lot. And again, I think, I guess if he's not number one now to win um, the French Open, I guess it's only because we're waiting on what Djokovic does, but I, I would be inclined to say even, you know, depending on what Djokovic does and how he does it to win Rome, I would still even put, Alcaraz ahead of Djokovic just because compared to to your point the physical struggles of these significantly older men you know Alcaraz was able to shake off what seemed to be a pretty nasty twisted ankle not only shake it off to beat Nadal on adrenaline but then to show up the next day and play as well as he did as aggressively and offensively as he did against Djokovic and do it again the next day after so many missed opportunities and getting to that third set tie break you know a point where you would expect your Rudes, your Gareens, your Rublevs, your Tsitsipasas to all crack. Alcaraz didn't. I mean, it just, it really goes to show that this, after having, after ending the 2021 20, season, all talking about the next geners, they all feel like old news compared to Alcaraz right now. <laughs> it's a very good point. And by the way, Longtime listeners of David and I doing these episodes, and you've been far too kind with your time to us here at Cracked Rackets this year, out ensconced in elucidate. Uh, I'm, elucidate. I'm, yeah, I, I, so elucidate's the new word of the month here. It's really, it's quite euphemous. <laughs> Are we just going to go all ease? 
Like, I, I like that as well. Um, you know, I – Yeah, I – I'm home this week, and you can assess the state of my childhood bedroom as soon as we're a little bit later on in this podcast. Again, hard out at the 90-minute mark, so we won't waste any time now. But um, you're, or you know, when I'm home, and I'm sure you're this same way as well because we work in tennis, and we're just magnets. Any take anyone has to throw on us, anything about anything, because they want to relate to us. They want to be our friends. They want to show they have a shared interest with us. You know, they're going to throw your tennis takes at you to a T, all of them unprompted, because I'm not going to ask, I talk enough tennis during the day, unprompted have asked me about Carlos Alcaraz and how real it is and about, you know, again, is this kid the real deal? Is this kid the future? I watch him play and even I can see an untrained eye that this kid has all the tools. And to your point, what's the freaking weakness with Carlos Alcaraz when you are assessing his game as a third party or as a neutral party, whatever it means, as a tennis observer – and I like to think I'm a tennis mind of my generation. God knows I've spent enough time doing it. I don't know. I have no – there is no obvious answer. There's, you know, very difficult nuanced answers. You want to say, okay, serve into the body, maybe left hip because you don't want to let him extend out into a return because he's going to pop it cleanly. You don't want to let him go on the forehand wing just about ever. Okay, you should serve left, you know, backhand hip for just about every player at the highest level. And, oh, you got to attack his second serve and be the aggressor and take the ball off his racket. But you need to do that against any freaking opponent. There is no speci- you know, specificity to any criticism one may have or flaw in the Alcaraz game. You just got to get lucky. You got to serve well. You got to play your best tennis. That's the sort of pressure Alcaraz puts on you. He's number one, according to Tennis Abstract's ELO ratings right now, which just, I mean, again, if I were to say, like, who else is in the, who's been better this season, Alcaraz or the field? The answer is Carlos Alcaraz, which is what ELO rating is a reflection of. That said, and this is how we can uh, – by the way, oh, well, let's just to finish the Alcaraz conversation. Anecdotally, are people talking to you about him now too? Because he does seem to finally be breaking through not just obviously the tennis consciousness but the mainstream sports consciousness. Yeah, I got a phone call last weekend from my mom who was reading about Carlos Alcaraz in Newsday, which is a a specifically Long Island moment. But even from the pictures and the descriptions of the score lines and the fact that he had beaten Djokovic was evidence enough that this Carlos, there's something to him. And she hadn't even watched him hit a ball. But I think there is sort of... uh, we overuse the question, how do you beat this player? This player has no weaknesses. How do you beat them when they're playing at their best? I really feel like with, with Alcaraz, it is all right now, the way he, everything is aligned physically, mentally, tactically. I don't really feel like there is a way to beat him right now unless he's to beat himself, unless he's to become so overwhelmed by the many options and the versatility of his game. If there was, if there was something to happen within his team, if he was to fall out with his coach, Juan Carlos Ferrero, if he was to suddenly become deeply overwhelmed by the moment and just have a catastrophic, you know, mental collapse, the likes of which we've never seen. I don't, it's hard for me to imagine someone because they're not going to beat him physically. They mean a hindered Carlos Alcaraz won those three matches in a row against three of who you would consider to be three of the best Masters 1000s players, because we can't say slams because one of them is Varev, but at least at a Masters 1000. I mean, these are three of the clutchest guys that we've seen over the last couple of years, and that's none of them were ultimately any problem for Alcaraz at the finish line. So I think I'm really looking forward to the French Open for no other reason, just to see him in that atmosphere, how he handles it. The first time he's coming into a Grand Slam as if not the odds on favorite, the anecdotal favorite to win it. How does he stand up to the pressure? Yeah. So 
last bow, and then we'll move on from Alcaraz, who's not even playing this week in Madrid, but certainly, again, after his, uh, in Rome, excuse me. Playing in our title. hearts. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> but after his title in Madrid this season, holding, and you go, Alcaraz, I believe, 28-3 and overall in the year. Holding serve 85% of the time. Novak Djokovic, for his career, has held serve at an 85.8% clip. Breaking serve, Carlos Alcaraz, 34.2% this season. Excuse me, 34.3% this season. For his career, Novak Djokovic, who I think we all agree is the best returner in men's tennis history. You can make your Agassi case. The 90s I was gonna, just going to say not Andre as good Agassi. as the 2020s. <laughs> You're just wrong. Um, no, I mean modern day. But, but what if you got to train? Whatever. We're not doing that right now. Djokovic is 32.1. So again, this kid who just turned 19 is putting up a season statistically similar to to Novak Djokovic's career averages. I This is my final thing on Alcaraz. To all of you out on t- tennis Twitter who are saying, don't hype this kid. Let him thrive. Let him be his own person. Don't compare him to Nadal. Respectfully, go f*** yourself because we want to have fun as a tennis community. And I am sorry, but I understand the sentiment. And this is that you you call it tweeting for clout, which is a, a term I have stolen uh, very well. Uh, and, and I appreciate it. If you are tweeting that, you just want likes. You just want retweets. You don't believe that yourself. There is not a single person out there who is off the Carlos Alcaraz hype bandwagon. Yeah. And like, it pisses me. You know, tweeting for cloud is the thing that you know that pisses me off more than anything else, David. And don't you like it when I send you the tweets that I that I I'll send you another one that to me epitomizes tennis Twitter that I'm not going to publicize because I like the person who tweeted it out. But oh my God, was it atrocious? Um, yeah, Don't talk I, about Ben Rothenberg like he's not here. No, I, first of all, if it was Ben, <laughs> kidding, I would say. I'm kidding, yeah, I'm kidding, it's the, not Ben. He's the one I would say. I'd have no shame about, but it's someone I actually like who I don't want to f- send criticism to. Well, I actually like Ben. It's someone I'm not as comfortable with, I should say, personally. Um, I just, again, that might have been harsh, but just, like, shut the f- up. And let us enjoy ourselves because this is as fun as it has been. From like this is the first time you can see the post Big Three era, and it, there is a shape now. Yeah, it's it's a Carlos Alcaraz shaped hole yeah, in the wall. Yeah, that I mean, perfect little like measured hairline. I gotta say, I don't feel like yeah, I know even <laughs> yeah, even with that, it's like he's got one up on a doll. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> looking at, I mean. Jose Morgado tweeted that, you know, Alcaraz is going to enter Umag. And I just thought to myself, isn't he going to be tired after winning the French Open in Wimbledon? Like, I don't know. <laughs> but I have to say, I haven't really been seeing the don't hype Alcaraz takes, at least not after Madrid. I mean, having watched him play the way he played in Madrid, that was just, it was a whole nother. It was the first performance I've ever seen worthy of hype ever. I mean, he is, he is, he is appropriated the word hype. Yeah. <laughs> he is yeah. hype. Yeah. I, well said. Carlos Hype Alcaraz put it on the Twitter profile. With that in mind, let's switch gears here, talk about some of the other players who have looked good and are starting to round into form. And one of the guys, in my opinion, who, and again, when Monday's odds come out, if you were to ask me, a betting man, I would say Alcaraz is going to be somewhere be- between plus 150 and plus 200. I think second place or tied right alongside of Alcaraz, particularly if he wins the title this week, will be Novak Djokovic, who, as you always remind all of us, put himself in this position, you know, by not getting vaccinated. And that's why we haven't seen him be able to play a full complement of events throughout the course of the season. That said, again, you know, goes to Bel- you know, goes to Monte Carlo, loses first round to Davidovich Fokina in three sets. Davidovich Fokina goes on to make the final. In a vacuum, not a bad loss. Belgrade, 
makes the final, couple of three-set matches to get there, calluses himself up, loses in three sets, six love in the third, not exactly the best against Andrei Rublev, but again, that's part of the learning process for Djokovic as he works his way back into form. Last week, 7-6 in the third loss, obviously, to Carlito in that semifinal. This week, 3-2 and ever Karatsev. I'm throwing out the 2-2 two two win over Stan because I'm sorry, Stan is just not the litmus test for a Djokovic performance anymore, but particularly against Karatsev, that's the best I've seen Novak Djokovic look this season. And I mentioned this earlier, I think, when I watched Djokovic against Alcaraz last week, that felt like the Karatsev match from last year, where it's like, okay, this was extraordinarily close, this one get win against me, but I'm almost back. And I do think Novak Djokovic, he looks fit, he's serving better, he's playing more confidently, obviously did not serve particularly well against Karatsev, but I thought he served particularly effectively today. I think he's rounding into form, and like, let's not forget, this guy won three of the la- four Grand Slams last year, made the finals of the fourth, would would have won, what, four of the last six, had he not pegged, you know, a line judge in, in the neck at the 2020 U.S. Open. I'm uh, If you're a Djokovic fan, again, blood in the water with Rafa a little bit banged up, like, I think it's time to get excited. It still feels a bit draw-dependent with Djokovic. I mean, I think the Belgrade... The Belgrade draw was really just a gift from baby Jesus. I mean, the fact that he was able to get two Serbs back to back who worship the ground he walks on, who were not able to close him out. I mean, it's totally a sliding doors moment for him. And even this draw in Rome, I mean, to get Karatsev, who's been a bit washed up to my eternal um, disappointment because I was very much on the Karatsev train last year. And then obviously to get Vavrinka in the state that he's in, Felix now in the quarters who has not played great since winning his first title. He finally won his first title in, I don't know how many attempts, eight or nine attempts, and just thought, good for the year. And <laughs> really hasn't been at his best since then. And then, you know, gets either Shapovalov potentially or Rude in the semis. You hope that he gets Sitsipas or Zverev in the final is probably the best, most accurate litmus test. Perhaps Sitsipas, just based on the way Sitsipas has played at the latter stages of slams, might be the most accurate representation for him. But again, I, it still feels like I'm more curious to see what his draw looks like in Paris, even more than how he does in Rome, unless he's to like really run the table in Rome, not drop a set, not play a set more competitive than six, four. Like that would also be a statement in and of itself, but we still want to see how he can do in you know, best of five, which we still haven't seen yet this year, given his issues with stamina, that's a question in and of itself. I mean, if he comes out of Rome, winning it as, um, dominantly as he feels, as it seems he is set up to do, then that's great, but I'm still curious to see how he does um, in best of five. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair assessment. And again, I do think physically, which was my biggest question for him in Belgrade, he's taken a step up. And just again, he's finding his range. He's finding his rhythm. That first serve percentage against Karatsev was obviously atrocious, but hell hath no fury like an informed Novak Djokovic. So that's come, something to keep in mind. Do you think Medvedev ends up playing this event or no, uh, the French Open or no? I think so. I mean, he's supposed to play Geneva, right? So with that in mind, you look at this draw. I mean, Medvedev's the one. Tsitsipas is the four. Nadal's the five. Like, they could all be on the opposite side of Novak Djokovic. Now, Alcaraz at six is the fascinating one. Is it going to be straight seating? One versus eight, two versus seven, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes it's not. It is going to be fat. Like, again, if you're Djokovic and you say, hey, you can be on the same side of the draw as the world number one and number three in Medvedev and Zverev, or you have to be on the same side as four, five, six, Tsitsipas, Nadal, Alcaraz, he'd be like, no, let's just do the top three. 
on the same side of the draw. Like, I don't want those guys anywhere near me. And, you know, again, with those guys in mind, let's talk about as before we transition to the women's side. Who let's just let's just play a game stock up, stock down, stock hold, so we can crank through these quickly. Stefano Tsitsipas here this season, who again has been quietly pretty exceptional throughout the course of this clay court year, obviously wins the title in Monte Carlo to get things kicked off and goes to Barcelona, three set loss to Carlos Alcaraz. I think many people is one of their favorite matches of the year. The three sets against uh, Zverev in Madrid, yes, he lost that match. I thought that was a particularly good match. Of course, the circumstances of that match, it was played like 12 hours ago, even though the tournament ended last Sunday. Um, it, it, you know, tough for both guys in those circumstances, certainly. But for, you know, Tsitsipas, who beats Rublev, beats Dimitrov there. He's beaten Dimitrov three straight weeks. He's, you know, gotten wins over Davidovich Fokina. He beats Zverev in Monte Carlo. A good win over Hatchinov to advance to the quarterfinals here today. Can he win the 2022 French Open in your mind? He's certainly the closest of the next— oh. So oh. let me rephrase the question, and we'll leave it in. And I apologize for cutting you off. Oh, you liked it? No, this is good because you were. This is good. You get the chance to redo the answer here. So it, it's the best of both worlds. Is he tier one or tier two? What I was going to say before I was so rudely interrupted was that I, I would say he is my number one choice of the next gen crop. So that would include Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Zverev. Rublev, 96 to 99. Yeah, of those people, but I thought those people. But um, <laughs> I, I would say right now, tier one is Alcaraz, Djokovic, Nadal, perhaps in that order based on contingent upon Nadal's health. And then I would I would even carve out a 1A for Tsitsipas because I do feel like he is a step ahead of the rest of that crew. If he had been able to beat Zverev in Madrid and make the final, even if he lost to Alcaraz, I probably would have put him up closer to one because he was – absurdly close to winning Roland Garros last year and is the closest of the next-gen guys to win a slam outside of Medvedev. And now we're talking about a slam on clay. I would give the edge to Tsitsipas, who did also beat, I believe, Medvedev in the quarters of Paris last year. So stock mid to hold, uh, mid, stock mid to up on Tsitsipas. Yeah, I think that's fair. And it wouldn't be a podcast between you and I if I didn't bring up the results since pandemic play begun in August oh 2020. <laughs> All right, just again, for Stefano Tsitsipas, he's played 54 matches on clay in that stretch of time. You want to guess his record? He's played 55 matches. 54, is, but yeah. He's, all right, he's played 54 matches, and he's probably won 47? First of all, bravo. However, if it was Price is Right, you'd have gone slightly over. 44 is oh, where he's at. 44 and 10. But, I mean, again, who are the 10 losses to? This is a fun list. Sinner, Rublev, Djokovic, Nadal, Rude, Djokovic, Djokovic, Alcaraz, Zverev, and then the Hamburg loss last year he threw in against Krajinovic in that, you know, uh, I think he played what that Hamburg clay was. I think that was post-Olympics or like right around the Olympics prior to that. So we can throw that one out the window. I mean, again, you have to be the best of the best to beat Stefano Tsitsipas on a clay court right now. (sighs) I'm going to put him bottom of tier one. Just right at the bottom of tier one, and that's going to say stock hold because I think he's earned the right to be there. He made the final last year. He's going to be the very bottom of tier one. But to call him tier 1A, 1B, whatever you want to go with, I don't think that's a bad assessment either. He who shall not be named, Lord Voldemort, Alex Zverev, <laughs> obviously I think has played better of late, makes the final last week in Madrid into another quarterfinal here in Rome. I mean, straight set victory for him today. Where are you at with Zverev? 
I mean, I, he'll, you'll never have him tier one. I understand that because uh, you, meaning the pejorative us as a tennis community, he just has to prove it at a Grand Slam until he wins one. I don't think any of us are going to believe he's capable of it anymore. That said, he is not the same player he was in February and early March. You're right. He's worse. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, he certainly this is this is about what he showed this time last year it was a rough start to the season gets to turn it around in Madrid and we'll see how he does this week in Rome. All that said, you know, one of Tsitsipas and Zverev got dangerously close to beating Djokovic to win a slam. Guess who it wasn't? It wasn't Zverev. So I would have to honestly put him below. And I think the more slams that he racks up without a signature result that does not include that wacky schmacky final against Dominic team. I mean, it just continues to count against him and sort of where we rank him. And now he's getting passed by the likes of Alcaraz. So, I mean, this yeah. is, you want to talk about like put up or shut up time. This is probably these next three slams are really probably his best chance to make a change and say, I am a player who can compete in best of five because right now that has not been the case. And I think this Chapavalov match was quite instructive and illustrative of the kinds of matches that he loses at these majors. Well, well, I actually think that was his first bad loss at a slam in quite a bit of time because he has been a consistent fourth round or further guy for the past three years. But to your point, this, and I'm going to go beyond three. I'm going to say seven slams because I'm going to go next season as well. This is the window. Like, it's open now if you're Alex Vera. If that Carlos Alcaraz is doing all of these different things that Nadal and, you know, is, is dealing with injuries and not playing as frequently and, you know, Djokovic is doing Djokovic things. The window's open. Like, this is it. The moment he won that Summer Olympics, there was a, you know, a, a shining light on Alex Vera saying, now is your time. Hasn't proven it yet. And so I would say it's a tentative stock hold. I can't put him lower than tier two because physically, just again, three out of five sets, that brings out his, you know, again, it's just a tough out for lesser players. But it's not tier one under any stretch of the imagination. You thought he was going to win the U.S. Open based on him winning the Olympics. No, 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 no. But I thought he had a chance. Absolutely. Pause for laughter. No. <laughs> yeah. Five. I mean, doesn't he deserve 0.25, you know, 25% of Medvedev's title last year for just being that fine, like not final knockout blow. By the time he was done with Djokovic, the glass was cracked. It was shattered at the top left corner. Like all Medvedev had to do was kind of put his foot on it and watch the entire thing fall over. I would again. I would this put, is, I would I'm, I'm not as Vera of apologist. Stop no, doing I, this to me. Yeah. I would. I would blame the Olympic movement. I really feel like that <laughs> that quest for the gold medal was really what had Djokovic on edge for most okay. of that summer. And then by the time he got to the final and had that last match to finally get it and do it, I think that's. I think a lot of it. I don't, I wouldn't put that on Zverev, but okay. I'm just of, saying. Set some of set us set are apparently. Yeah, so <laughs> setting a breakdown in that Olympic semifinal. I can only go with what my eyes showed me in that match, but. Again, we're going to go through these these other guys quickly because I want to talk about the women's side. Yannick Sinner into another quarterfinal. He's 0-11 in his career against top five opponents. But, Ouch. I mean, again, talk about uh, – to me, he's the litmus test for top ten right now. It's like, can you beat Sinner? You can't. You're not top ten. Can you? Okay, you're probably top ten. He's what, like 24-5 and five this season? And even if there aren't signature victories – He's been very good. Now, Tsitsipas is a guy who chopped him in Australia when it felt like Sinner had built all of this momentum. And, you know, again, Sinner lost to Tsitsipas, you know, Sinner lost in straight sets to Tsitsipas at that 2022 Australian Open. But he's beaten him on clay before, albeit in three sets. He's hungry for that signature win. All the hype on Carlos Alcaraz. You know, Yannick Sinner wants to not only show all of us, but his home crowd here in Roma uh, that he's the guy. 
Where are you a sinner heading into this 2022 French Open? I kind of put Yannick and Andre Rublev in this sort of ginger boat of players <laughs> who have had, cast, had like a lot of excellent mm. matches and had have had really great years and yet have very little to show for it. And I think for, mm. for Sinner, it's largely physical. And I think maybe for Rublev, it's more mental. But I feel like for, for Sinner, he's been so close. And yet it feels like at the end of every week, I'm sort of annoyed by how things turn out for him. He was so close to beating Zverev in Monte Carlo. That felt like his talk about his moment and then puts in a strange loss to, you know, Oje Aliassim in Madrid and now has this big opportunity again against uh, Stefano Tsitsipas. Although I don't know if I would put him as the favorite in that one, just based on the way that Steph has been playing, but at least has gotten through three, you know, solid enough uh, match wins over Martinez, Vanini, Krajanovic. It feel, it, again, it just feels like tortoise in the hair. Like he may end yeah. up, you know, breaking through better eventually, but it still hasn't quite happened yet. And I think that's still the physicality and or lack thereof for Sinner compared to an Alcaraz. So mm-hmm. I would I would put the par for Sinner at French Open quarterfinals. He's got to at least do that. And then if he can do better, that would be fantastic. FA, FA spray becoming FAA. Four straight quarterfinals. Stock up, stock down, stock hold. <sighs> For FAA, I think I'm I'm a little bit up on him, a little bit, yeah. but I think it's I'm still it's it feels like it's still not all the way there for him yeah. after winning no, his winning first title. Successful French Open to him would be fourth round, like hold seed, get yourself in that position, and just again given he's round five hundred on clay courts. But I've never understood that because the heaviness of his forehand, like. Can you imagine having to try to slide into that forehand and just or like trying to deal with the heaviness of his forehand and being like, wait, I have to recover to a second ball? Like I just I can't even imagine dealing with that against Felix. And so I agree with you. Slight, I would say stock slightly up, not the highest bar, but uh, still a bar for him to clear. Casper Root, stock up, stock down, stock hold. Oh, I'm finally buying into Casper this week. I'm very pleased. <laughs> I feel like it's it's been a while. I wrote about this for tennis.com. I feel like Casper is finally kind of, kind of coming around and coming off of his hard court hangover. He talked about, you know, in the middle of the match against Boda Van de Zanschlup, how he felt like he was returning too far back and wanted to start playing like he was playing on hard courts. And I feel like that tends to happen to these players where they break through on clay, they have to play the rest of the season on hard courts and sort of change their game to work on hard. And then they don't really know quite how to play once they get back on clay because they know they've been successful, but they don't quite know what strategy to employ. But he was much more aggressive those last two sets against Bodic. He was super aggressive against Jensen Brooksby today, hit double the winners and only five more errors than the than the talented Americans. So this does feel like a big opportunity for Kasper Rude to certainly get to his another master semifinal and potentially get that match against Djokovic. That would be a huge one for him. It feels like he's been on the bubble and he was just about to fall off the radar, like right under the wire for Kasper Rude to, to kind of get back into that Roland Garros conversation. Still needs to prove it at a slam, much like Sparov. But if he can, you know, get this this moment, I think that would be a really great way to turn around this clay swing because it has been brutal since making the Miami final. Bottom of tier two, no doubt about that, but playing just well enough to not fall out of that second tier. And yeah, you feel like, again, he's a guy who should hold seat. It's time to see him have that big result at a Grand Slam. I mean, any other men, men's results over the past week or, you know, whether it's Madrid, whether it's here that we want to discuss. I think Hercots is a pretty good litmus test. I know he lost first round here, but it's just like, unless you play a perfect match. Hubi just can throw the freaking entire smorgasbord of things at you. I like how he's playing. I think Demon Hour is quietly playing. This is by far, I mean, I tweeted this out. He, you know, he had six career clay court wins coming into the 2022 season. He's already gotten seven uh, here this year. I think he's playing a lot better. 
We can do our standard 15 seconds on what is Karen Hatchinoff. Still not entirely clear to me at this point, but three out of five sets, I always just keep my eye on him. I don't know. Any final thoughts on the men before we transition here to the women's side? Bummer for Foki. I'm still bummed. I feel like with just one brutal loss after another, the latest coming here in Rome to to uh, to Felix from up a set and, I'm, and probably up a break because it was a tiebreaker and, and a third set loss. It just feels like these are some really brutal emotional losses after getting that that emotional high of making the Monte Carlo final. He's talked about that in the past of dealing with you know the lows after highs and maybe it's just sort of that still adjusting to where he sees himself in the conversation, getting to his first master's final, playing as well as he did to get there. And, you know, it just, you hope that he has a decent French open because he did make the quarterfinals there last year. So there's a bit of pressure on his shoulders to defend, but I'm a little bit concerned based on the way that these last couple of losses have been going. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I mean, again, more broadly, pretty clear top three on the men's side, Djokovic, Nadal, Alcaraz. After that, things certainly get funky, and we'll keep our eye on how this action ends in Rome as we uh, look towards the start of the French Open again in 10 days, which just, ugh, I don't like the sound of that. All right, with that in mind, let's switch gears, talk about the women's side. And, you know, again, Iga, with her victory today, she continues to just rock and roll, and she right now plus 135, the next close, uh, according to odds makers, to win the French Open. Next closest is Simona Halep at 7-1. to one. After that, you start getting the absorbent numbers, 12-1, to one, and then a bunch of 25-1s. to ones. The point being, we're inching closer and closer to Iga not just being the favorite, but being straight up favored against the field. Like, by the time Monday rolls around and the start of the French Open begins, she may be minus 125 to win the title, which is prime Serena or like Barty at Wimbledon last year levels of respect. And Barty at Wimbledon last year, I think that respect came from the fact that it was just no one else knew anything about anyone on grass courts. So there's just like, yeah, let's go with Barty, minus 125. That said, Jabour wins the title last week. Certainly some interesting bites at the apple this week. I'll start here. Who's number two? A question we've pondered before. Who's number two in your mind heading into the French Open, and how big is the gap between Iga and the field? It's funny. I would have had Halep definitively at number two, but based yeah. on these last two losses in Madrid to Jabour and now to Collins in Rome, certainly the, the hype train feels like it's kind of um, – come to a halt for Halep. Yeah. It, felt, it felt like it was sort of a honeymoon period. Those first few matches in Madrid has sort of hit a, hit a snag there. It's tough to pick a number two. I mean, I would like to see the winner of Sabalenka and Nisimova. If, if Arena sure. can get finally beat Amanda, that might make me want to put her up at number two. She's felt like the season's just getting started for her. Um, after a rough start, if Amanda beats Nisimova, huh, Amanda has been beating Nisimova. That's the problem. If yeah. Amanda can beat... <laughs> Arena Sabalenka and make the Rome semifinal, get a good match against Iga, perhaps. Bianca Andreescu has been playing quite well. I mean, that sort of changes the conversation. I think if you were looking um, at like sort of my top picks to do well at the French Open, it is most of the quarterfinals that are here in Rome. Um, but all that said, I think Iga is just so much better than everybody. <laughs> and, and now is finally proving it. I think she always had the potential. And now this is, you know, the only it's, it's sort of the Alcaraz issue. She's in the same boat as, as Carlos. You know, the only thing that can kind of stop her at this point would be a Sakari like implosion, like what she suffered last year. I mean, 
like I said, it would almost have been good if she'd gotten a loss at this point in the season, but she did pull out of Madrid, which I think was sort of wise in retrospect. She did not need the extra week of altitude clay. It didn't really matter. She's getting the, you know, the experience of playing sort of in similar conditions of Rome and, you know, perhaps defending her title there. It's, it, I don't even think it matters right now who is number two, just because of how confident I think I and everybody else is in the fact that Iga is going to win the French Open. I think it's sort so, of just, there's a collective underneath, but I don't think there's a definitive number two. Our mutual friend and known philanthropist, Gillen Gross, aka Gil Gross, host of Three A Tennis Show and various functions for Tennis Channel, uh, brought up the idea, and he, he posed it as a question, and I thought it was interesting. Would a loss be good for Iga? In Rome, this is here, what I've been saying. Going into yeah. the French Open, I think it depends on who and how. I mean, I think yeah. she's in a, she's in a half of the draw where if she were to lose to Bianca Sabalenka or Nisimova, it would be far from an an embarrassing defeat. I think everyone yeah. would say, "Wow, you know, Bianca's back. Wow, Sabalenka got finally got her revenge on on Svantec, and wow, Anisimova is the real deal." So I think she's sort of in an ideal situation where she wouldn't be losing a huh match. You know, I think it would have been kind of weird if she lost to Azarenka with all due respect to the former number one clay has never been her favorite surface. And so if she had managed to let that one slip away, that would have been an odd one. But I think, you know, getting a, a good loss as they call them, I think that there's certainly no shame in that because I just wonder if the bubble bursts for Ega at any point mentally, she is still so young and is still getting used to everything. Is she being kept in the ideal mental health space to deal with all the pressure that's going to likely follow her into the French Open where everyone is expecting her to win? So I think, would a loss here help? Perhaps. I mean, but at the same time, she's got some really good opponents that you probably have to play in Paris anyway. So I, I think either way, it kind of it's it's all gravy. I really I, I agree that that's the case for why a loss would be good. Why I'm against her taking a loss at this point prior to the French Open. You know who would be the most dangerous freaking human in the world? You know what? That deserves an F bomb. You know who would be the most dangerous human in the world if she were to beat Iga in the quarterfinals? Bianca Andreescu. Like, are you kidding me? BB, who has still played fewer than, what, 30, 20 matches in her career at the WTA level in on clay courts, who has. Maybe the highest plethora of main character energy of any player on the WTA Tour. You're telling me Bianca Andreescu coming off of a victory over Iga in Rome can't convince herself and convince all of us pundits and prognosticators that she's the dark horse pick and she's the one to watch entering the 2022 French Open. That's why when you said it depends who the loss is to, like that, I I couldn't agree with you more. I think the only acceptable loss— is Jill Teichman, who, like, is just in the midst of one of those weeks. And, like, sometimes Teichman does this. And, like, I actually think that could be written off to, you know, Jill is Jillin right now over these past two weeks. Like, outside of a loss like that, which I still don't think would be considered a bad loss, I just don't want to give my rivals anything, like any sort of confidence, any sort of momentum. Because to your point, right now, Iga's on a different plane. And even today in her, what was it, 6-4-6-1 victory over Victoria Azarenka, that first set was, what, 75 minutes, whatever it was. She didn't play poorly, or she didn't play well, but she problem-solved her way to victory, which is, of course— what you wanted to see from Iga at this event because she has been playing so well of late. 
I just don't want to give my confidence, uh, my opponent's confidence to anything. And, you know, again, Anisimova, semifinalist at the 2019 French Open. Sabalenka's freaking Arena Sabalenka. And I swear to God, if she beats Pavlichenko, well, I mean, you can't say that because every match is in a vacuum with Arena Sabalenka. No two matches are similar, but like... She should have beaten Pavlochenkova last year. And then heading into the second week of the French Open, she's probably the favorite Like at that point of the tournament. Something crazy like that. I don't want to give Anisimova, Sabalenka, or Andrescu anything to be comp- confident about. And I know this sounds stupid and pretty straightforward, but like, no! A loss would be bad. Like, I do not want a loss right now for Iga. Not bad, but it wouldn't be good. Yeah, I don't... Yeah, it's just, it's so... It's so up in the air because, again, she came off of you, you remember how she played in Rome this time last year as dominantly as she played in Rome. And it ultimately did not help her in Paris. So, I mean, I think either way, it's I, just based on the way she's playing this time this year, it's it's a different animal. But I do think that if anybody um, I think it's just an that's the I think if you're looking for that second tier of players who are competing for that French Open title, who can realistically win those seven matches in a row, I think it is potentially those four women in the top half of the draw and perhaps on Jabor who's now won her ninth straight match somehow. I don't know. <laughs> so let's get into owns who you look throughout the course of the season and she's dealt with some injuries certainly uh, throughout the course of the year, but you look for her now here in 2022. She's 23 and seven very quietly overall again, 77% win percentage 51 and 17 over her last 52 weeks of action as well. And again, outside of a loss to Gavrilova, in the Indian Wells first round, which was a three-set loss, there's not a single bad loss for Own Jabour on her resume this season. And we're not going to do the Halep, don't worry. We're not going to go loss by loss, and we can debate good loss, bad, you know, all those different things. But A, the creativity. Like, again, just talk about a person whose game thrives on these clay courts, her ability to find the angles, to open things up, to still hit the line drive by you. And then I will continue to say it to my dying day. Own Jabour is just an underrated mover. She just is. The strength of her first step, the flexibility she shows, her ability to hit and be creative on the run. Now, I'm not saying elite power doesn't expose her, but elite power exposes everyone. I love, I, I just love, the. again, we're talking about you know, there's no discernible weakness for Own Jabour. I don't think that's true, certainly not to the extent that it is with Carlos Alcaraz. But in terms of her floor, match in, match out, I mean, again, like, when was the last time the floor dropped from underneath Own Jabour? When was the last time she played an atrocious match? I, like, I can't think of one over the past two, three seasons in this pandemic era. Um, I'm... There's a case to be made that she could be number two. And I mean, again, who's the who's in the hottest form? It's her. The good news for Owens is that she has not become a different kind of player. She's basically yes. the same player yes. as she always was. And it's just, it's just navigating. It. Yeah, just navigating the dips. Mm-hmm. The bad news is she's still the same kind of player that she was. And, you know, to win Madrid, she got bageled twice. And so <laughs> it's an odd sort of thing to, to characterize the, as someone be, who's also on one hand, very dominant and also capable of losing six games in a row. And is that kind of um, Russian roulette going to bite her in a grand slam? I mean, she needed to win what five, six matches to win Madrid. She'll have to win another five matches or so to win Rome. If she's able to win Madrid and Rome, then it goes to show she can string together a lot of matches in spite of her streakiness, you know, but you still think that in a matchup between clay and grass, grass is more forgiving of the streaks because she's able to kind of make them last longer and perhaps, you know, shake off the dips 
more um, easily. You know, clay is obviously something that favors, you know, the movers, the rallyers, the players who can kind of draw out those, make mm-hmm. someone like a Jabor hit the extra ball. Um, so it's just sort of an interesting juxtaposition for her. But, but again, as a former, you know, junior French Open champion, so it's certainly clay is not a surface that she is averse to, maybe perhaps in the way that even Barty was coming into when she won her title. But it's still, you know, sort of one of those players who you still are hard pressed to believe will win seven matches in a row at a slam unless she does it, but you know, wackier, wilder players have done it. So perhaps, you know, underestimate her at your peril, I suppose. No, I think that's a fair assessment now. With that in mind, again, let's move through some of these other players as we try to see who are the threats going to be. And I think we all agree, Iga's tier one. She's on her own. But as we try to fill out tier two, I mean, you could make a case every player ranks from two to 36 on the right day could belong in tier number two. I want to talk about two Americans, and this is a debate we've had throughout the course. I mean, we can talk about three and throw Danielle Collins in the mix as well. So let's throw three in the mix. Danielle Collins, who gets the win over Simona Halep before getting knocked out today in the realm round of 16. Of course, she was so great on the clay in lieu of playing the Olympics last season. And did she beat Muguruza last year? Was it two years ago? Who freaking remembers at this point? But Collins the had fall, some... yeah, the one yeah, she, and then the she got a set on Kennan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was a fun match, by the way. Shout out! To, I'm glad someone else remembers that as well. But looking at you know the point totals this year, Collins is ninth. Obviously, has that Australian Open uh, in the points race this year. Obviously, has that Australian Open final boosting her up. Jess Pagula, very quietly number eleven. It's actually interesting, you know, again, Coco Goff quietly sitting at number 18 right now in the live rankings. Oh, no, excuse me. I was looking for the points race. This is the live rankings. I was like, this doesn't look right. Something about this feels off. You look in the points race for this season. Uh, currently, again, Danielle Collins obviously has had herself quite the year with those French Open points. She is currently sixth right now in the points race. Guess who's fifth? It's Jessica Pagula, who, uh, again, just like crank it out. Round of 16s, quarterfinals, week after week after week. Madison Keys is eighth, which is pretty cool. But Amanda Nisimova right now, still alive in the Rome quarterfinals. She's 11th right now in the points race. So four American women in the top 11 of the WTA points race right now. Who's the most dangerous entering this French Open? And are any of them tier two players? I think right now it's, you know, recency bias, but I think it's Nisimova. Sure. I mean, I think I was really looking at that section of the draw and thinking that Pakula would beat Sabalenka. And the Collins would beat Inisimova. And the fact that both of them lost sort of as definitively as they did to Sabalenka and Inisimova, respectively. Obviously, Pagula had a great run in Madrid, has some phenomenally clean, pristine technique. But, you know, it's still when did the wheels fall off her bus? Perhaps that happened here. Maybe she can recover in time for Paris. But I think Inisimova is just she's got that X factor um, sort of similar, similarly, but differently to Collins, where Inisimova has pedigree and Collins has sort of that street fighter, you know, ability to sort of overcome, overcome, you know, those who, um, who doubt her. And so that's always a phenomenal trait to have. It got her to the finals of the Australian open um, and is a great clay court player. But I do feel like this talk about like the next couple of slams meaning a lot for a lot of different players. I think this is a huge moment for Amanda Inisimova. It feels like sort of her make or break after the start of the season that she had having sort of all sorts of ups and downs emotionally, physically, um, to to be back now in contention for what seems to be her Rome semifinal to take based on her head-to-head against Sabalenka. This is a big opportunity for her and, and obviously has some really great technique and great uh, is a great game to watch. Um, this feels like her breakthrough moment, especially on the heels of what Pagula was able to do last week in Madrid. You just feel like of those three, Anissimova has the highest ceiling. Um, so we'd like to see her finally crack it. She can help. Yeah. 
No, I think that's fair. I would point out, you know, you talk about the underdog mentality Collins takes in. I also would throw in, and this is an intangible thing, but I think being the best college tennis player is actually massive for your confidence because at some point in your life, you were the best in the world at something. And for two years, Danielle Collins, yeah, exactly, was the best college tennis player in the world. I feel like her, Stevie Johnson, was at this point as well during the prime of her career. Just to be the best at something, the confidence it gives you. I mean, obviously not to the extent that Collins was with Stevie, but to be the best in something, just intrinsically, you're like, well, I've been the best. Like, I know if I, I when I have trust in myself and the cards are down, I know I can get the job done. I mean, to your point about Anisimova, you know, I mentioned it, 11th in the points race. She's the youngest player in the top 20 of the WTA points race this season. She is three months younger than Iga Sviantek. And, you know, again, she's been a part of our lives for so long, and the pandemic seems to have added dog years as a multiplier to all of our lives over these past three years. But, like, 20 years old, just scratching the surface of her talent. To your point about this French Open, a big result for her, uh, not just second week, but quarterfinals, semifinals. You feel like then she's back elevated, maybe not on the Iga tier, but the best of the rest, like she's absolutely some, you know, right there now. I think she kind of fell out of the conversation with the Kostyuks and the Tossins and the, you know, hot take from of mine and Lees of the world. That's no longer the case. Like Anisimova is back, and I agree with you with the big French Open. It feels like she could become a top-tier sort of personality and top-tier sort of, I mean, just story. Like I just feel like we're going to pay more attention to her with a big result like uh, the sort of she enters the spotlight zone with a big result in Paris yeah that she fell behind uh yes Towson Kostuk and Lee in the perception race has a lot to do with the way Anisimova was just go girl give us nothing for a lot of yeah. years at this point and obviously there was a and lot of course, reasons behind yeah. that pandemic and you know personal tre- tremendous personal tragedy the likes of which most of us cannot even imagine so I think yes. obviously there's reasons for it but I think you know that it was certainly wasn't because of potential and talent that people were looking at Kostuk and Towson respect to both of them and thinking that they had more potential than Anisimova because I think Anisimova is just potential plus. And so mm-hmm. the fact that it's coming together slowly but surely this season, but I still want to see a big result because it hasn't quite happened yet. And with that in mind, let's talk Sabalenka, who she's got next in the quarterfinals. Obviously, Anisimova 4-0 over Sabalenka in their career head-to-heads. They've played pretty frequently of late as well. They played in Charleston, three-set win for Anisimova. Madrid, three-set win for Anisimova. <laughs> that said, as two longtime drivers of the Arena Sabalenka bandwagon, you look at what she's been able to do over the last few weeks. Arena woke up, and we said this going into Stuttgart, and we said this going into, you know, again, these high-pressure, high-level clay court events. It was put up or shut up for Sabalenka with the struggles she had in the first half of her season. It was just, simply put, time for her to make a move, or it was time for us to maybe move on from her for the duration of the season. Uh, Just, again, given the inconsistency she showed, particularly on serve, in the first few weeks— was the double fault percentage against Jessica Pagula today back in the vomit zone? Certainly. It was, you know, above 10%, and she's been above 10% in the double fault zone in that match, in her loss to Sviantek uh, over in Stuttgart, in her loss to Anissa Mova in Charleston as well. You still see it from time to time, but, you know, again, far less frequently than we did when she averaged, you know, over a 10% double fault rate, and I think each of her first nine matches of this 2022 season. The serve has returned to form, 
uh, not reform, but has returned to some sense of normalcy. As such, again, the plus one tennis she's able to play, the aggression she's willing to show, not only in her service game, but in her return games, there's just more opportunities for her to get into those plays. I don't think she's quite at where she was last season, so more broadly, it's probably still the slightest of stock downs on Arena Sabalenka, but this isn't a Bitcoin situation. It's not tanking. Like She has slowly regained her value, and I do... I mean, again, I think her Rabakina, like one of these power players is going to pop at Roland Garros. It's really a Sophie's Choice matchup because as much as I'm excited to see Anisimova get a breakthrough win, I'm also very excited to see Sabalenka finally get a win over Amanda Anisimova. I feel like I'm losing my youth and beauty waiting for it to happen. I felt (laughs) like we were really close in Madrid. We were as close. We were even closer in Madrid than we were in Charleston, and we felt pretty close there as well. Just one of those mental matches, it appears, for Sabalenka. And again, the double faults have never, they've always been part of the package with Sabalenka. It was just the, the way she was hitting those double faults at the start of the season, when they were coming, double faulting whole games away and just not even making the court with some of these serves. That was what was so distressing. She can win matches in straight sets hitting nine or 10 double faults. It's just when they're coming and how, how she's hitting them and how they're affecting the rest of her game. If she can feel confident with that serve, the rest doesn't really matter. So I think the fact that she was able to go out against Pagula, a match, a matchup that I did not think favored her, it was just seemed like one of those matches where, you know, clean hitting from the American was going to undo Sabalenka's sort of chaotic nature. Mm-hmm. Gets the job done in straight sets and now has another crack at Amanda Enesimova. You feel like she's getting closer and closer. The matches are getting more competitive every time she plays her. And, you know, this is one of those really great tournaments in the sense that it, it really sets you up well for Roland Garros. So whoever can win that match takes a lot of momentum into Paris. And if it's Amanda, then, you know, feels like we're back in 2019. And if it's Sabalenka, we're back in 2021. Yeah, very well said. Uh, notorious PBG. Stock up, stock down, stock down, uh, hold. Obviously, Paula Bedosa, who we're referring to here. Stock down. She lost the, so, she lost right? to Daria Kasakina today. And talk about that hardcourt hangover. It's just, it's not working out well for Paula Bedosa. And I really feel like after Charleston, when she was kind of talking about feeling fatigued and skipping Fed Cup or rather BJK Cup for that reason, I felt like, you know, she had a very busy schedule of Charleston, Stuttgart, Madrid, Rome. Oh, I hope she's not playing next week. I mean, she might, <laughs> but I mean, I feel like this was just a big mistake. I mean, we're talking, we're looking at players like Sviantek skip Madrid, players like Alcaraz skip Rome, bank on your talent, do not play every week. I mean, all of that to just, you know, briefly you know, unseat Barbora Krechkova for number two in the rankings, if that's what she was playing for, who is, you know, about to talk about looking for a number two. She's our current world number two on the WTA rankings, not for much longer. She is out of Strasbourg and will likely, it appears, not play Paris. And if she does, she will be, you know, that necklace was really her final horcrux, it would seem. But unfortunately (laughs) for Badosa, I mean, just not knowing how to readjust her game back to clay is proving disastrous. Now losing to another, you know, tidy clay court player in Kasakina who, it's not a player she should be losing to, you know, to be quite frank, you know, very talented, but has a definitive ceiling. You know, when Palabados is playing at her best, she is one of those players. You feel like, how do you beat her because of her tenaciousness, because of her physicality, the durability and versatility of her technique. None of that's really working the last couple of weeks. And it's a shame because it, you just feel like this was sort of her moment to be the definitive number two player behind Fiontech. And it's, oh boy, it's not working out. Let's, let's go peak nerddom here. If you had an enemy who made you feel like your life was threatened, would you sect to them? Would you go the whole nine yards here and, and throw that spell at them a la Harry Potter? Yeah, I got to tell you, that was really my only Harry Potter reference. Yeah, I knew so. it. I knew it. Look, it was a risk. I knew I was throwing <laughs> the rod out there. I was like, is he going to do it? I was like, he's a little old. I know. Um, but 
<laughs> I can I can throw a Bellatrix Lestrange at you. I did okay. kill Sirius Black, but otherwise, no spoilers. <laughs> yeah. That's sort of my <laughs> my main my main uh, my main foray into the J.K. Rowling yeah, universe. No. Uh, trans poor, rights. P- poor p- p- Professor Quirrell from the <laughs> yes. first movie. Yeah, that, that's a good one. You like that? Yeah, um, we all saw no. the first movie. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. Um, got two eyes and a heart. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. Um, I like it. Uh, yeah, two eyes and a heart. That's funny. Um, no, again, with all of that said, um, yeah, I, I mean, as we look at the women's side here, again, quarterfinal matchups. Let's do final thing, and then i got to let you go because we are somehow inching closer to that 90-minute hard stop, which is pretty funny. Um I mean, we haven't done a soccer piece. I don't have like she's stock hold for me. I don't have much to add there. I just we've done this before. How is Jill Teichman not the most fascinating player on the WTA tour? It's just again the ups, the downs. Like on the right week, Jill Teichman looks like a top ten player in the world, and I just I'm fascinated by the lefty. She has as many fans as she has L's in her name. Now, I feel like. <laughs> I mean, I just think that there hasn't been enough exposure to Jill Teichman. I think that she doesn't do it enough at big tournaments. I mean, when you're a big calling card is Cincinnati, you know, and to a lesser extent Madrid, I feel like you're not going to get the headlines that maybe you feel like you deserve and doesn't really have the explosive, you know, smack you in the face kind of power that, you know, other players have where they really command your attention. There's something about Teichman that feels niche, that feels... I don't want to say gimmicky, but feels sort of like restricted in many ways. And so if she can, you know, make the finals here in Rome, which based on her section in the draw, I mean, it really does feel like it's anyone's game to make the final. I feel like it probably should be Sakari based off of, you know, freshness and name recognition. It probably should be Sakari, but I I, I would put Teichman as as much of a probably a two-way tie between Jabor and Teichman behind Sakari to make that final. I mean, Sakari is very much the kind of player who, is draw dependent. You know, how, how is everyone kind of playing around her? She still doesn't really have that sort of capability to play too many A-level games, matches rather, in a row, played the best match of her career to be a Palabadosa in Indian Wells and then showed up in the final against Sriantec, sort of outmatched and, you know, overwhelmed by the wind, but is sort of, you know, one of those, you know, players who has really maxed out her potential in many ways. And so I, in that way, that way, I have so much respect for it. sort of a very fascinating uh, contrast, Sakari and Jabor of natural talent and all <laughs> hard work, sort of seeing like the two extremes of that spectrum going head to head. But yeah, I think, I think Teichman needs to probably make another final needs to probably win Rome to get that kind of respect that you're looking for her from her. And she's got to play a full year. You know, she hasn't done that yet. Yeah. How old is Jill Teichman? Can you guess this? I'm sure, you know, 25. Yeah, about to turn 25. Twice on the price is right, you've been cut, David, just a little (laughs) bit over. And those are the rules we play by here. But she's still just 24. By the way, Sabalenka just turned 24. Like, she is both simultaneously the oldest and the youngest 24 maybe uh, that that is out there. I just – yeah, these 24-year-olds, again, these are the ones – She is a hard 24. (laughs) Yeah, okay, fair. Um, I mean, again – it was at age 24, 25, when we saw that next jump from a Sakari, from, you know, a uh, Conteve last season as well. Kasakina, I think, has played pretty uh, a little bit better as well, and she just turns 25 years old. The point being, you know, this is when the prime of the career starts now. It's not 21, 22, the way it used to be. And certainly the best of the best, a la Iga, They'll hit their prime early still, but that's what we're talking 13, 14 year primes. Those are the special careers in tennis history. It is 
it's not unreasonable to say Jill Teichman has yet to play her peak tennis, that she has yet to hit the prime of her career, particularly given all of the starting and stopping. And there's just been too many bright signs that, you know, again, given she's still just 24 years old, I'm not ready to sell yet. Like, I, I do think I'm holding my position on Teichman. You know, I I held on to the Sapolenka position probably a little bit too long, although it has bounced back this season. I'm trying to think the position. I mean— Sonia Kennan going into 2020 is the position that bought me a new place in Sarasota. Like that was, you know, probably st- from a stock perspective, my best purchase of all time. I'm holding on to some Teichman stock. I'm just going to keep it in the back pocket. That's like the bar mitzvah funds are going on Teichman sort of deal there where we're playing around a little bit. You know, a couple units on that. I feel good. She's got that smooth Spanish accent, which is a big shock because yeah. you don't expect that from the Swiss. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, a little bit more mileage. Maybe she'll become everybody's cult favorite, but maybe not yet. Yeah, a Swiss person who clearly grew up watching a lot of Rafa. Like, that's where you see the accent. In from. Spain, Barcelona, yeah. like, practice, like, train in Barcelona, one of those, one of those. Yeah, no, I mean, I think she does a better Rafa impersonation than you do. Uh, if yes. we're being <laughs> Low bar, low bar. Yeah. She clears that bar. That bar, she's already cleared. Yeah. All right. Well, with that in mind, any final thoughts on the women's action we've seen unfold over the past week or, you know, any things you need to plug, obviously, as I know you've been busy over at Tennis.com. Just that I feel Paola Bedosa levels of exhausted and the fact that the French (laughs) Open is coming up in less than it feels like less than a week is maddening. But I do have a couple of days off in between the the end of Rome and the start of Roland Garrison. Very much looking forward to that. I did cover Casper Root and the hardcore hangover on Tennis.com. And, you know, there'll be another volley out. We've been doing a little debate series between myself and Steph Livide. We'll be covering players on the business side, you know, in light of uh, Naomi Osaka's foray into sports agencying and sort of how other players have done similar things and sort of branched out beyond the lines of their typical tennis court. Yeah, I I think all of that is uh, exciting stuff. I read the Alex McPherson interview of Yulia Putenseva, and I was furious that it was I'm you. I'm so I am still mad, and I yeah. Yulia Putenseva. Everyone acts like that was the first time anyone's ever interviewed. I know. Yulia I was oh like, my excuse God. me. I have like done. I have a long proud history of See, interviewing Yulia is- Putenseva for no reason. So <laughs> <laughs> like apropos of nothing, I've had plenty of interviews with Yulia Putenseva. It was an amazing line. All credit to Alex, but I am so mad that of all the times I've spoken to Yulia but she's never given me that gem. Yeah, I'll, and I'll never all, get over it. If you weren't on the Ostrava Linz grind at the end of 2020, I just don't respect you. Um, and I you know I'm just kidding, but I know yeah, again, baptism uh, by fire. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But no, I agree. Like, just know, and that was tweeting for clout. Everyone who who complimented, like, I was just as angry on your behalf. Like, please know that I was like, you guys know David invented the Putensiva beat. I'm like, I was, I was simmering so, rage. I was yeah. at her junior U.S. Open final, the way she threw the trophy in the trash. I was there. Yeah. <laughs> I was in the room where it happened. Yeah. Well said. That's all I got for you. Well, again, as always, you can read all of David's work over on tennis.com. And as I mentioned at the start, we have already. I've already secured him, even though he doesn't know it, for next week to talk even more about the French Open. But hopefully this hour, 20 minutes, helped you all catch up on all the action that has happened over the past week. Of course, if you need to play catch up on anything else happening, go read David's work over on tennis.com or go check out our website, crackedrackets.com. And of course, like, rate, subscribe, review to this show, the Great Shot Podcast, Cracked Interviews Podcast, our YouTube channel. It's a 31 podcast week here this week on the Cracked Interview Show. And again, that's outside of what we're doing on our other two podcasts. We've got the content. We hope all of you listeners enjoy it. Of course, a shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, on the ones and twos for the f- 
of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. A shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 with all that in mind. David, final words before we wrap today's show. And that's... Dusting yeah. <laughs> shoulders off like Yulia Potensiva. Uh, the break. I love it. Well, as always, David, thank you. And we'll chat more soon. Peace.